I don't know if you realize it, but we're having church this morning. What I mean by that is not just not just being together, but like we're literally having church. Because if you if you were to actually break down what they did for church in the New Testament, even the Old Testament, they would gather in a home. This is kind of like a home, right? But they they would share about things that God had did, those mountaintop experiences, our praise reports, right? They they would shout about them. It would give people encouragement on what's to come, on how how they were able to to get through the week and things that were going on, and they would share these things. Because, see, it's more about uh, being together as a community and getting together. They, they would share this stuff. It was to get together as a community and brag about God. And they would do that. And then there's there's moments that aren't really mountaintop experiences. Because, see, I don't know if you can read all the words exactly right, but that says he's more than a mountaintop. He's more than a mountaintop God. It's valleys. And if we're to be quite honest with one another, life is full of a lot more valleys probably than it is mountaintops. But at least when you're in the valley, you can look up and see the peak of the mountain. You can hear how somebody else got through the valley. You know? Then there's the reading of the word, which I think was probably the most important part of, of church when they gathered. And then the expanding and the, and the teaching of the word and things that we learned from it. So we've kind of been on a mountaintop for the last few weeks with Elijah. I don't know if you guys have thought about that. You know, Mount Carmel, all the miracles, the healing, the raising of the dead. I mean, just, just so much good stuff going on that we... We almost begin to get used to just Bible verses and chapters being real good, right? And then you get to a chapter like this, where if we're quite honest with one another, it ain't real good what's going on. But even in chapters like this, we can pull a lot out of what God's wanting to teach us, you know, through it. So, so three weeks, I'd say maybe even four weeks, we looked at nothing but the prophet Elijah and things that went on in his story. Then we get to today, chapter 20, and the shift goes from Elijah, the Lord's prophet, to Ahab, Israel's king. And I worded that way on purpose because we need to see there's a transition from God's man to the world's man. Remember, Ahab was not the king that God wanted to be on the throne. He was not supposed to be on the throne if it wasn't for all the, the downward spiral and valley type stuff that, that had been going on. And to be quite honest, this, this story is kind of so bad, Elijah's not even mentioned in this passage. So we go from a guy who was the main guy for, for three to four weeks, who, who was the leader who's appointing all these these new leaders, even calling up his his own man, which, by the way, we'll come back and, and use a little bit of the end of chapter 19 when we get to Elisha. Um, and again, I will mix those two names up all throughout the first Kings and second Kings. So that's all right. Uh, but but then we get to chapters like this. Chapter 20, chapter 21 and chapter 22 is all not to disappoint you for the next few weeks, but it's all a, a picture of the failure of Israel's king to live faithfully before the Lord. It's from the mountain down into the valley. And when we get to this chapter and we focus, and, and here's what I want you to keep in mind. The same thing we've been saying with Elijah. I want to focus on what this chapter tells us about God. It's his word. I think, therefore, then it should be telling us something about, about him. So, yeah, you'll probably be able to relate to different characters in here. But I think a large, a large portion of how it affects us and changes us after we relate to those characters should be what the chapter really pictures and, and tries to portray about Yahweh, our father. So let's look at this thing. Verses one through three. Somebody who read much better than me had told us this king was going to attack. Not only was he going to attack, he went and got 32 of his buddies. So you can picture like this being like a mafia boss. He's the kingpin, right? And he's got these 32 other guys who are kind of under him who we could assume at some point had, you know, given in to him to join his team. Uh, and he makes these threats. And, and, and look at what he says in these threats about what he expects from this. 32 kings, the horses, the chariots. Notice it always mentions that when it's man's success. He marched up and he began to fight against him. Then he sent some messengers to King Ahab of Israel. By the way, I don't know if you guys know this. These same two people are fighting right now. Syria and Israel have been fighting for 2,000 years. So this, this, is, this is it. This is what, what's going on in real current day time, right? He sent messengers to King Ahab and he told him this. This is what Benadad says. Your silver, your gold, they're going to be mine. Now, you gotta, you got to really look at, at verse 3 here, okay? Notice the wording. Your silver, your gold are mine. Your best wives and your best children will be mine as well. What he's saying is, I want you good-looking women, not your ugly wives. You know, I, I don't want the wives that are, that are giving you grief and giving you trouble. I just want the good wives. And I only want your good children. I don't want those little heathens that are hanging from the curtains and swinging all over the palace. I, I want the good ones. And you almost get like verse four is almost like kind of funny because verse four, 
It says, the king answered, just as you say. I wonder if he's thinking, like, I can finally get rid of this Jezebel witch that I've been dealing with for so long. Now, I don't know if that's what he's thinking, but I'm just wondering, like, he was so quick to give in. If he's thinking, like, well, if I can finally get rid of her, maybe I can start ruling my own house the way I want to rule my house. Right? Some of you men right now are thinking, yeah. Just as you say, I'm yours and all that I have will be yours as well. Here's what we got to grab from this very beginning. One, this is a very large army coming to attack a smaller group. So we've got a bully. Scripture tells us about Satan being like a bully. A thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. A thief that wants to to strip us of everything. A thief that makes threats. And he makes these threats. He goes, look, this is what I'm coming to get. I'm coming to get silver. I'm coming to get gold. I only want you good women. I only want you good kids, right? Then you get verse 4, where this king is a wimp. Ahab is a pansy, okay? I'm being dead serious. You've got to picture this, Sam. This guy is the king of Israel. God shows him people, yet he caves in instantly with these little threats. There's no arguing. There's no, oh, no, you ain't going to get my, you know, I'm thinking like silver gold. Maybe I'll write a check to keep some peace for a little while. But you ain't coming in and taking my woman and my kids. You know what I'm saying? But that's my mentality. This king's mentality is I can't stand up to my wife. I definitely can't stand up to a man. You want to know why God calls men to be leaders? Because we're supposed to be. But we begin to waver in some points of that calling over our life. We begin to waver in other callings in our life. I'm serious. Now think about this. Just a little small lesson, just in that little, that little thing right here. He couldn't be the man of his house. So how's he going to be the king of a kingdom? He couldn't be a man here. So how's he going to be a man there? And I'm going to get to a point that really shows you he even understood himself that he wasn't a man by the way he responds to something the prophet tells him later, right? Now, this is after three years of drought. So you could say like they are weak right now. The rain has just started to come back in, okay? The enemy will attack you when you're your weakest, okay? The enemy will purposely attack when you are weak. And if you're willing to give in, the enemy is willing to take. Look at five and six. It goes even deeper. said the messengers then returned. Now, you got to picture this messenger, man. What's he thinking about these kings, right? I mean, one king's bullying the other, so he goes and delivers that message, hoping like you don't get beat up himself. I'm thinking like this is Sparta, kick him in the pit, right, go crazy and, and start a movie theme about this thing. But this other king like gives in. And he's probably walking back the whole time. What a pansy. What a wimp. So he gets back to his king and he tells his king, hey, Ahab's a pansy. He's going to give you everything you want. This is good. We can save all our men. We don't have to go to war. This is wonderful. But Benedad, he's a jerk. He says, no, he's going to give me all that that easy. I want more. And look at what he says. Verse 5 and 6. And there's a lesson for us, guys. If you're going to give the enemy some, he's going to take more. If you're willing to give in to some parts of your life, he's going to take as many parts of his life as he can. He's never going to be satisfied with what you willingly give up. Verse 5, the messenger returned and he said this. This is what Benedad says. I've sent messages to you saying that you're to give me your silver, your gold, your wives, your good wives, and your good children. But this time tomorrow, I'm going to send my servants to you. and They're going to run up in your palace and all your houses and your servants' houses, all the places. I'm just going to roll up everywhere. And they're going to lay their hands on whatever they want. They're going to take whatever is precious to you. Your good-looking wives and your good kids ain't enough. I'm going to come back and take your ugly wives and your bad little brats, too. That's what he's saying. I'm going to take everything that is precious to you. Whatever my my men lay hands on and lay eyes on that they like, I'm just going to claim it. And finally, finally, Ahab at least grows just a little bit of a backbone. He says, hold on now. It's one thing if you come in here and take some of my stuff. And see, maybe that's the problem with so much stuff that we got. Maybe we got so much stuff that we're willing to give the enemy some of it and settle for the lower parts of it. And Ahab had so much junk, so many wives, so much children, so much gold, so much silver, that he was just willing to get rid of some of it to keep the peace. And the enemy said, no, that's not enough. I want what's most precious to you. And at least he says, man, you, you're not just going to come in here and leave me with no women and no kids and no gold and no silver. So finally, and notice this whole time, by the way, this guy never thinks to pray and talk to the Lord about any of it. But he does at least at verse 7, you know, call some of the elders together. Verse 7 says, so the king called the elders of the land. Ahab finally gets these advice from counselors. He said, please note this. This man was seeking trouble. 
He sent from a wise, my children, my silver, my gold. And I didn't deny him. I was going to give him everything to keep the peace. Almost like he's bragging. I think the elders are thinking, what a moron we got leading us. You know what I'm saying? Like, what, what a wimp. But it's almost like, guys, I was willing to do this. And, and maybe you can even jot this down if you know takers. The sooner you deny, the better it is for you. Or at least the easier it is for you. The sooner you deny the enemy, the easier it will be to deny him later. Right? Verse 8, all the elders of the, of, of the people, they, they came to him and they said, man, don't, don't you listen and don't you consent this time, man. All right, grow a backbone. Show that you got some spine, right? Act like a king. And thankfully, Ahab does seek the advice of these wise men. These wise men give good advice. You know, we're not going to cower like this. We are, we are the Lord's people. We, we are this, right? So you get 9 through 12 where he sends this reply. Hey, I was, I was willing to give you a little bit, but I, I'm not giving you all that you're asking for this time. And whenever a tyrant is coming after you, they don't like it when you don't heed to all their rules. And that's going to start trouble. And you just need to be aware of that. That's not something to cower from. That's just something to be aware of. You know what I'm saying? And that's all right to be aware of. Be ready to fight for it. So what he says, you know, we're not going to do this. So Benedad, he ain't happy. And because he ain't happy, he thinks having this, this massive group, all his, all his friends under him, all this, he says, let's, let's just go to war then. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're going to come and we're going to do what we said we're going to do. And then you get to this, this weird part, man. Because I'm going to be honest, if you kept this in timeline and we hadn't studied this and and we didn't read the whole chapter already and, and chapters ahead. What a cheater, um, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff going on. You know, we would almost think like, OK, this is the punishment that God's already been promising. Like they about to get wiped off the planet and it's going to be justified. But you get verse 13. And a prophet approached King Ahab of Israel and he said, this is what Yahweh says. You see this whole huge army? Watch what I'm going to do. You got to love when God says, watch what I'm about to do. You know what I'm saying? Like that, when you hear that, like it's about to go down and it's about to be real, right? Watch what I'm about to do. I'm going to hand them over to you today so that you will know that I am Yahweh the Lord. Now, me on the inside, I'm thinking, my goodness, this guy was just on Mount Carmel. He just watched fire come down from heaven. He just watched a dude run past him while he's riding in his chariot to, 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 to get to town first. He, he watched the Lord protect him from his wife this entire time. How much more does God have to do to show that he's the Lord? But aren't we so grateful for God's grace? Because in his grace, he says, I'm going to do this just so you can see one more time that I am the Lord. Right. And we get this moment and I'm thinking right here, like what? What did Ahab do to deserve this? Now you're thinking, I wouldn't ask that, but you got you got to get in a position to ask that so that you get what God has given. Okay. Because if you don't ask questions about scripture and put yourself in the, in the shoes, you're not going to get all that God's got for you in it. So you got to ask, what did Ahab do to deserve this? What, why in the world would the Lord come to Ahab's defense? More importantly, why didn't Ahab just get his butt kicked and get it over with, right? He's already seen the Lord. Wasn't it enough for him to have already seen the Lord? Wasn't it enough that, he, that he's watched God perform this stuff and heard about all this stuff? Over and over and over again. Why should the Lord give Ahab another chance? And you got to ask it because here's the answer. Man, this is just a picture of an unannounced act of God's grace. I mean, look at how beautiful this scene is really, guys. There's no good reason. We, we never get a reason why the Lord does this. And God doesn't have to have a reason to explain his grace, by the way. Even when we don't understand it, we think we know where that is, Right. Okay. what's even better is this. God's grace always begins with God and not with us. This king never summons the prophet. The prophet just appears. Could you imagine getting ready for war and and the the pastor comes walking in? Hey, before you all go out, hold on. Oh, good. He's going to pray for us. No, I'm not going to pray for him. I'm just going to tell you what the Lord says. And that's it. I mean, this guy just shows up on his own. You ever been there? You ever been when, when, when a situation looked dark? and grieving, and bad, and just out of nowhere, someone from God shows up. If you've never been there, you can, I, cannot, I cannot put you emotionally where that should put you. Because when you've been in an area where you know the lights are getting cut off, or, or, or there's a medical diagnosis you don't like, or a family member you just lost, or I mean, you think about your darkest and most painful moment, and you don't know how you're going to make it through it, and then somehow... You didn't call nobody. You didn't text nobody. You was too awestruck to even think about calling for help. But somehow 
the Lord sent somebody. And that somebody just come in at the right moment to give the right word that you needed. You know, it's one, one of the neat things. I know I know some people still hate texting, you know, that you older people, uh, you know, and I'm just now getting into it really well myself. And, and I kind of like it because I can text 25 people, right, all in about two minutes. I couldn't make that many phone calls in two minutes, right? So the technology does have some benefits, you know, with it as well. But you ever been there and then like this text pops up? And you just smile because like you don't need to open it. I don't know. Y'all, y'all got a phone smart enough like mine where you can look at it and it'll tell you what the message says before you open it. I thought y'all are all like, that's old. That's the coolest thing to me, right? Like I look at that thing. I ain't even got a swipe. I just look at it and it tells me the first couple lines at least. But but if those first couple lines are good, you just begin to smile, right? You're like, yeah, like th- this is what I need. And then you might even swipe to open it up and read the rest of it and, and check it out, right? But if you've ever been in a moment that's dark and you ain't happy, and you get that text. I mean, you can't explain it. He's like, man, you don't know like what the Lord just did. Telling you to text me at this moment during this, right? He, he just showed up. The religions of the world speak of man's search for God. You know what scripture talks about? Yahweh's search for man. Complete turnaround and flip of what's going on. God's grace seeking us out. His mercy giving us what we don't deserve. It's with King Ahab. It's with Israel. It's with us. And we got to grab a hold of that in this chapter this morning. If nothing, it's just, just, a, just a simple lesson to be reminded of, right? Because here's the truth. If we had read chapter 20 and it said that Ahab was wiped out by the Armenians, we wouldn't have thought nothing of it. We would have agreed. We would have thought that was exactly what it was. But we also wouldn't have had the chance to see God's mercy. Yet one more time, right? The Lord had every right to turn him over to abandon him, but he doesn't. The Lord's got every right, if we're honest. You know, we always ask the question when bad stuff happens to people, you know, oh, how could God let that happen? How come God don't let it happen to you all the time? If we don't get honest about it, right? Is that just being real? Because in reality, we deserve a lot of bad stuff all the time. But I'm glad that God doesn't give us what we always deserve. That's part of his grace. So maybe maybe this is a question for you. Lord, don't shout out an answer, right? But maybe just a question for you to think about on the very beginning of this this chapter or the middle of this chapter. How many times does the Lord himself have to show you his power, have to show you his grace, have to show you his mercy before you are going to acknowledge that he really is Yahweh? Right. How many times before how many blessings he got to give you before you're going to receive him and start trusting? How many times he got to come in and rescue you before you're going to start obeying him? And what I love is just to prove the point that it's Yahweh doing it. Verse 14. Hey, I've asked this question. By whom? And the prophet said, this is what the Lord says, by the young men. I don't know if you catch it, but but the breakdown there in in Hebrew is the unexperienced. You can almost say he's saying boys instead of men right here. I'm going to bring in the JV squad. And the JV squad is going to whoop up on the protein. Not only is is the JV squad going to come up and whoop up on the protein, the JV squad is only going to have 7,000 men. And the pro team got hundreds of thousands of men. So they're going to be outmatched, outnumbered, and not even an experienced fighting force. You know, I'm thinking like, like you know, uh, David and his mighty men would come in. At least that makes sense, right? You, you take some of the baddest, most trained men on the planet and let them go fight. But no, God says, you know what? You've already seen that happen one time. Now I'm going to outnumber you and I'm going to send in the rookies to do it just to prove that I'm doing it and you're not doing it. Verse 14, God promises Israel this military victory by his hand, not by man's hand. And Ahab, <laughs> this guy's such a moron. <laughs> I'm serious, man. Like, you got to picture this scene, right? So he's already been willing to give up and not fight for gold, silver, his women, his best women and his best kids, right? He's already been willing to settle for, for second best right there, or third best, or probably like fourth or fifth best, if we're being quite honest, right? The scraps, yeah. So, so he's with the but here he says, he hears this from the prophet. The prophet says, I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to take the JV squad with only 7,000. We're going to beat up 100,000 trained men, and we're going to win. Ahab knows he's a wimp because he says, oh, God, who are you going to do that with? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you picture this. He's the king. He's the leader of this army. And his first question, he doesn't even doubt that it's going to happen. So I do kind of like his his faith as far as that, that part of it, right? He doesn't doubt that it's going to happen. But his question is, who are you going to do it with? I wonder if God's just like wanting to bite in the forehead one time. You know, sometimes we need a good a good forehead slapping uh, to, to, to get our head shook up, right? 
But then I'm reminded of people who come up in the church and do the same thing, right? I know none of you would do it, but I've been in churches where people have come up to the pastor or you know, leaders if they're too scared to go to the pastor. Right? Right? You know what I'm saying? Like they, they need to go, you gotta, you gotta work it, network it up to the pastor because you're afraid to go talk to him. It's alright. Right? But they'll come in and be like, the church ought to be doing dot, dot, dot. Right? We ought to have another Sunday school class. We ought to be out there witnessing to, to the people every Saturday. We ought to be, you know, we ought to be doing this. We ought to be delivering food. We ought to be. And then they'll get a whole list of stuff like that. They'll just get a, get a list going, right? And I like it when it finally makes it to me. I mean, not me, because we're talking about other churches. That's right. But but some pastors, some pastors will like when the list makes it to them because they'll read over the list and they'll be like, I agree with this. You know, it's, it's like you got you a pencil. And you're like, check, that's cool. Check, that's cool. Check, that's cool. And, and here, you ready for it? You ready for it? Because here's the response. Who's going to do it? Right? That's the next question. The next question every time is, well, who, who's going to be the one to do that? Who's going to be the one to start that, right? You know what the Lord says? Read it. It's good. Last word. Three letters. Amazing. Super short for all the dumb people in the room. Right? Who's to start the battle? You are. You are a faithful king that I put in place. You are your whip with no spine. Right? That's what he's saying. You are. Who's going to organize the efforts? Who's going to be the one to get it done? Now, there are some of you in here. There are some of you in here, which, which I love, because you will come to me with an idea and you will tell me about this or you'll tell me about that. And your very next thing, there ain't many of you, so don't think I'm talking to all of you, right? Let's be honest about it. We, we want to be honest. But but your very next sentence will be, and I'm willing to do this if you say it's okay. And I'm going to tell you right now, as a spiritual leader, and as just somebody who believes scripture, that's the most awesome thing in the world right there. I mean, you can't you can't beat it. I'll tell you right now, you can't beat it because churches are full everywhere of people who want to do stuff. But they're also full of people who don't want to do stuff. You know what I mean by that? Like they, they want the church to be doing something, but they don't want to be the ones doing it. They just want their name on it. Some of y'all was so you laugh. Some of y'all was so happy. Five men from the church went and built that little tiny house and you got your name on it. Oh, they saw Brookhaven. No, they saw five men of Brookhaven. Right? Let's do it. And a woman, I'm sorry. Well, somebody got to take the pictures. There's reporters all over scripture, right? <laughs> Here's my point. Anybody can point out what we need to do, but are you willing to take responsibility to get it done? Right? Anybody can point out a need, but are we willing to take responsibility for getting it done? Think about this. Ahab knows the leadership of war is going to take effort. So he assumes. I must be calling somebody else because I ain't got no effort. Right? We always want somebody else to do it. Guys, there's a problem when we're always wanting somebody else to do it. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I just wish I could walk faithfully like they do. Well, then get in the word. You don't get what they got because you're not willing to do what they do. Right? And listen, here's a real good rule to follow for the church. It is A-OK to point out problems as long as you're willing to be part of the solution. Right? You can point out all the problems you want to point out. You just better be part of being willing to be part of the solution for it. God answered you. I love it because he's not looking for a new leader. He's not looking for a new champion to come to the rescue. Because here's God's point of view. Now, you got to get from God's point of view to get this. He wants to do his work through an unlikely you. That's what he's saying. He goes, man, your men already know you a little wimp. But your men have already lost faith and confidence in you. So I'm going to take you and I'm going to take the JV squad and we're going to go kick butt and I'm going to get the glory from it because everybody's going to know it wasn't you. It was me. Verse 16. I feel like we got like old Western happening on verse 16, by the way. You read what it says? So they went out at noon. Talk about the army of Israel, right? We, we, we got a shootout at high noon. Right? They walked out there. They got their, their guns in their hips and, they, and they're ready. And they're ready to fight. And in the meantime, we get this little bit of information in between there. Where it says, meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and 32 kings, you know, his, his, his little little squad of, of mafia gangster punks, uh, you know, they're hanging out in the command post drinking. Now, you get a couple lessons from this because you think, you're thinking, well, what you get from that? You get a couple lessons. One, 
They're so overconfident. They don't think they got to exert themselves any. You get your butt beat when you overconfident. You know what I'm saying? You get your butt beat when you overcome. They're so overconfident they, they do it, right? The other part about this is they think they can fight a battle and booze it up at the same time. And I'm going to tell you right now, war and whiskey don't ever match up. Some of y'all got, and I'm not even telling you you can't drink. What I'm telling you is if you're about to go into a fight, don't drink before it. If you're about to argue with your spouse, don't drink before it. You're going to say something you shouldn't have said. Right? If you get ready to go out to a ball game and you know you can't stand the people in the crowd, that yap their mouths like I had to deal with for a whole week in Myrtle Beach. Right? Thank God there wasn't no liquor up in Myrtle Beach, right? But, let me change that. There's probably a lot of liquor in Myrtle Beach. Wasn't no liquor in our hotel, though, right? <laughs> but warm whiskey is a good combination for defeat. On top of it, you got poor leadership. The, what this scene really reminds me of, King Benedict is sitting in his tent drinking and sat on the battlefield. Do you remember when David stumbled? His greatest stumble, where were his men? They went out to fight. What does it say? As the men were out to fight a time of war, the season of war, spring had come about, it dried up all the water, and it was time to go to fight again. David knew that. What was David doing? Chilling at the palace, watching the honeys through the binoculars, getting ready to start the most downward stumble he had ever fell, fell into in his existence. King Benedict and his 32 men, instead of on the battlefield, are chilling in the tent. When God has called you to be a leader, so you can learn stuff from idiots as well. You really can. You can learn people. You can learn stuff from the enemy. This is the enemy we're learning examples from, right? When God called you to leadership, you're going to lose if you don't step up and fight the battles with your people. Right? Now, you could also take a sad commentary, and I don't just care about it being alcohol or whatever else, right? It could be eating, drinking sodas, caffeine, receive peanut butter cups. But when we become a slave to any costly habit, it's going to cost us. When you become a slave to any costly habit, I'm not even saying like they was a slave to the alcohol. Maybe they was just a slave to the position of authority. We get to sit in the tent. We get to drink fine drinks. We don't have to go to war. Think about it. What could have been their mindset? When we become a slave to any costly habit, it costs us. 15 through 21. Thank God he shows up because they win the battle. Right? Without port, without good leadership coming in, these guys get waxed. Israel wins a great victory. Here's your greatest note from all four, five of them verses before we jump into 22. One battle doesn't win a war, though. Write it down. You better know it. Because I didn't see way too many believers who win one little battle and think they done won the Super Bowl championship every year since its existence. And then they get their butts beat when something comes back at them again. They get their butt beat when temptation comes one more time. Right? Point proven. Verse 22. Ahab gets warned, right? Verse 22. And the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, go strengthen yourself. Can you imagine that? You're finally in a moment of victory, right? Things going well. You're feeling good about yourself. And the prophet comes back again. You're like, he's going to come in and tell me, good job. No, he comes in and says, man, you get it, better get your butt back in the gym. You better strengthen yourself again. You better take notes. You better ask your men what they saw, what they didn't see. You better find out what you should be doing because in the spring of the next year, the king of Syria is going to come up against you again. This prophet knows that the season of war, when kings go out to battle, is coming yet again in another year, right? He also knows this. God works best through the preparation of his people. You can write that down too, probably. God works best through the preparation of his people. Some of us ain't seeing what God can do because we're not doing the preparation part. God wants to do some great things, but we're not preparing, right? Are you prepared for what's coming next? Are you prepared? You could, you could even ask this, even though we're not, we don't have Elijah in this chapter. You could have asked Elijah, Elijah, are you prepared for all the rain's going to bring? All the hatred, all the wars, all the people getting hungry again, right? All the people getting greedy again, all the changes. See, that mountaintop experience will change people. Then sometimes not for the best, by the way. You think about when the rain came and the crops were growing, I, get, I, I guarantee they quit working together as a unit and they started going about their separate ways again. Storing up their own stuff because of fear or whatever else, right? Are you prepared for what's coming next? Verse 23. Serious military. <laughs> Another group of idiots. Maybe we should have titled this. Forget, forget there's more than a mountaintop. We should have titled it a group of idiots. Write that down as a subtitle, right? God's more than a mountaintop God. Subtitle. Group of idiots. Verse 23. Now the king of, of, the, of the servants, he said to them, their gods 
Now, they've already got the wrong view because they're calling him lowercase g-o-d. It ain't no capital L-O-R-D anymore, right? So they're just calling him. They're deities. Are deities of the hill country. That's why they were stronger when we attacked them. We saw him fight on Mount Carmel. We already knew he was a mountaintop god, and that's it. If we just fight him, what's it say? Instead, next time, we should fight him in the plains. Because when we fight him there, we will certainly be strong. <laughs> you got to be a dumb man, a dumb human, a dumb creation, whatever you want to call it, right? When you say, we will certainly be stronger than God then. Right? I mean, that's what they're saying. We will certainly be stronger than, than they are then, right? They get a false view of God. You can, you can understand this for every believer or unbeliever. When you get a false view of God, you've created a false God. And I don't care if you make it sound good, you make it sound religious or anything in between, right? The, the concept that they've got here that we need to understand, a little bit of culture here, right? Is they, they localized deities in the ancient world to certain stuff because of, that's how they did their Baal worship. Remember, they had multiple Baals. You know, not bales of hay, but but bales their their, their God, and they would have a, a bale of this and a bale of that, and a bale, you know, all this all this kind of stuff. So they thought because their different bales weren't big enough to be one one mighty God, that you know, Yahweh must be the same way. So they said, well, the God of Israel must just be Lord over the mountains. So they were going to give him one one area right here, right one one thing, and they they figured that he lacked jurisdiction on flatlands. So they said, we'll we'll get ready, we'll strike again, and it'll be in the plains. And we'll stay out of the hills, right? Do we not do this? Some of us are thinking right now, man, that sounds kind of crazy, but but I think we do the same thing. I think we acknowledge that God is Lord over Sunday or, or Saturday or whatever. Some of y'all don't give him any day of the week, so there ain't no need to even argue over which day of the week you're supposed to give him, right? I done told you before, you know, I, I started worshiping on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, right? I just, I just went with all of them because... I figured I wouldn't need to argue which one, right? I, I, I take Peter's word on that. But we assume that, that he's Lord over one day, and we don't worry about the other six. We, we, we assume that he governs the spiritual, but, but, but maybe he's not over the secular in their domain. We, we think that he cares how we act in church, but we don't think he cares how we do business and politics. Am I right? I, I even thought about it when, when I was writing this down. I, I was thinking, like, you ever, you ever y'all grew up, who grew up in church? There's your most dangerous people in the room right there, right? They've been fed so much false crap their whole life they don't even know, right? I'm serious. You think I'm joking, but I'm not, right? <laughs> Especially those cats. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but but you got all that going. Any any of y'all ever ran in the church? Ran? Oh, see there you go. Right there. I get caught running sometimes, and that's what I would hear from the old people in the church. Don't you be running up in the church? This is the Lord's house. That's what they would tell you, right? So you get amen, right? Because y'all, all, I mean, you're wise people. Oh, <laughs> they come and I'll come back, right? You wise people would think like you can only not run here because this is where God has domain and nowhere else. You, no, no, no. Get back, get back, get past your butt to where I'm running the church. You see, you see the lesson we're teaching kids when we say that though? Don't run in here. This is. This is the Lord's place. Like, but once you get outside the wall, you can do whatever you want to do. But that's the mentality we have as adults. We give him a little bit of authority here and think he's got that. But he doesn't have authority anywhere else in our life. We give him authority over worship and our doctrine. But, but we just feel like sex and entertainment he leaves to us. Right? You see how we do the same thing they're doing? We don't want to call it that. We don't want to admit that. But that's what we're doing. Charles Spurgeon uh, writes this. Many today think that God is a God of the hills, but not of the plains. They think God is a God of the past, but not of the present. They think God is a God of a few special favors, but not all his people. They think that God is God of one kind of trial, but not another kind of trial. Don't you think if God brought you through one thing, he can bring you through anything? Right? Do we believe that, though? I think we're as foolish as the Syrians sometimes. We put... Uh, a limit on the scope of God's sovereignty and involvement in our lives. We do. We, we can be. Here's a problem. All kidding aside, this, this, this is the problem. We can be mountaintop worshipers, but he's not a mountaintop God. You know what I'm saying? Now, you, you look around. Go ahead and look around just this morning. Right? Just this morning. Look around. Who's here? There are mountaintop worshipers that you know are mountaintop worshipers. When things are going good in their life, oh, they come on into the church, right? They're proud to even stand up. They're proud to say something. They're proud to open their big old mouth and let you know that they only come during mountaintop experiences. They do. They're idiots themselves just like the rest of these people. 
who only acknowledge God when things are going great in their life, right? They're mountaintop worshipers, but he's not a mountaintop God. I feel bad for people who only know a mountaintop God. I do. I seriously do. I feel bad for people who only know a mountaintop God. I, I watched it at a funeral yesterday. You can watch people in the room who, who knew Yahweh versus didn't. I watched a mama who lost her, her daughter to a fight she was winning stand up and start worshiping in the middle of a, of a service. Like, like, like you, you'd scratch your head. Because she don't know just God of a mountaintop. She knows God of a valley. You know what I'm saying? Right? I, I love the fact that we serve a God who's a God even in the valleys. But not just the valley either. Now, I don't want to go that way either. Because, see, some of y'all, you'll look around the church again. Some of y'all are only valley-type worshipers. You ain't coming to church unless there's a problem. And then you need prayer, and you need assistance, and you need help, and you need all this. And the minute you get out of that little that little T90 rut you got in, you're you gone. You're a valley worshiper. Right? Going back to the to the valley over there in California and hang out there, because that's all, that's all half of them is over there, right? Valley-type worshipers. They believe God can get them out of something, and that's it. After God gets them out, it ain't no good no more. You think God only wants to celebrate the bad in your life with you? Right? Hey, how many of y'all only call somebody when you got a problem? Right? My, my greatest, the, 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 the boys at the shop sometimes will laugh. You know, we get Google reviews or Facebook reviews or whatever you call all that stuff. And, and I'll point out one that, that talks about how good a tire is. They'll be like, oh, you like it? I do like that because you know how many calls we get about something that might not be perfect? Right? What would it be like if somebody only called you when there's a complaint? Huh? Is that not what we do with the Lord? How about let's call God and tell him how good the ride is right now? How about let's call and tell him how smooth it is right now, how great things are going right now? I don't want to be a mountaintop worshiper or a valley worshiper. I want to be an all-the-time worshiper. Right? You create your... You know one thing I love about God? This is no lie. This is kind of like a little free mini-sermon for you, right? Everything about God is right here. Everything. The problem is you want to either take pages out of it or you want to add pages to it because it ain't big enough for you. You know what I'm saying? Like, God doesn't sugarcoat who he is at all. He's not like a blind date. He, he's not like a girl or a guy you first get to know and you got to wonder, like, what's it going to be like? What what crazy thing am I going to learn six months from now that I wish I would have learned back then, right? Some of y'all still doing it right. There ain't many of you, but some of y'all. And some of you wonder what's going to happen when I start living with them and, and I find out how bad they stink or how bad they smell or, or you know, whatever ungodly things they got going on in the bathrooms and all that kind of stuff. But you get worried about that. God? God says, I'm going to give you everything about me right now. Everything you need to know is right here, up front and personal for you. Like, you, all you got to do is open it and check it out. But y'all too scared sometimes to open and check it out. You're too busy. We'll get to that word busy in a minute. I didn't mean to jump the gun there, right? The, the problem is this. The world's conditioned us to only celebrate good times. But life ain't always good times. You know what I'm saying? Life's not, life's not always good. It's not about mountaintop mentality or valley, valley mentality. All the time mentality. You either see obstacles or opportunities. You look at a story like this, and, and, and even in even in this this valley, God saw opportunity. On the mountaintop of Mount Carmel, God saw opportunity. You know how God always just sees opportunities? He always sees growth. He always sees less than opportunity, right? What, what if we could just, no matter what I'm going through, praise is all I do kind of attitude, right? Like I'm going to praise him here, I'm going to praise him there, and all the way around, right? Here's a test for you. So I know some of you like to test yourself in a good way. Seriously, a good test for you. If you want to know how far you've come in your relationship with God, see if you can praise him when you're in a valley. I'm serious. See if you can get to, to a moment like that right there and you just write a song. Right? And you just start singing the song. Don't just write it. Sing it, by the way. Yeah? Huh? Now, now this is a mini sermon in a sermon, I'll be honest, but I do have time, so just hold on, right? Check this out. I, and I only got four of them. I had 12, right? <laughs> Cut it down to four. The rest of you should study on your own. Here's some types of valley in scripture, just to go through real fast. All right? You go to Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Now, I'm not going to make you read the whole thing. I'm, I'm going to read verse 10, just so you get the word that we're looking for in it. But, but, but when you read Genesis chapter 14, 1 through 11, here's what's going on. There's a battle getting ready to take place. So imagine that. The Bible's full of battles, right? There's a battle getting ready to take place, and some kings are supposed to fight the battle... Well, they like Ahab. They're a little wimpy. And they begin. Here's what scripture says. Verse 10. This valley. Now, this is the valley of Sidom. S-I-D-D-I-M. Because I know I'm pronouncing it wrong. Okay. 
but, but I just want to make sure you get it, right? So this is one of your valleys. was full of sticky tar pits. And these kings that were trying to run away, verse 10, they tried to run away from the battle. They slipped and they fell into pits. The valley of, of Sedum or Sidon or whatever you want to call it is the valley of failure. What were they running away from? Responsibility. You're a king. You're supposed to be leading your men, right? Rather than that, they, they're running away from responsibility. It's the valley of failure. Once you start running away from responsibility, what does it say? They slipped. You run away from responsibility. You're going to slip. You're going to fall. And you're going to get stuck. I'm serious. That's one of our valleys right there, right? Some of you are still stuck in that valley right now. Now, now picture if you're in this valley or if you've been in this valley, how embarrassing this valley is. If it's the valley of failure, that means everybody knew you were supposed to be doing it. Picture these kings, right? Fight. They run away. They get stuck in the tar. You imagine having to call your friend. So some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all got them big old fancy mud trucks, right? And, and you put them in places you shouldn't put them. And, 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 and you, you go through your call list. You're like, hey, uh, I'm stuck. Right. These guys, everybody would know when they came when they came to pull them out. Right. Because your friend ain't never coming by himself to pull you out. If he knows you stuck, he bringing a friend. If he ain't got no friend to bring, he bringing a phone that records it and puts it on Facebook for you. Okay, because that's what true friends do, right? They love each other through the, through the mud, right? Everybody knows this was your responsibility. So when they get there, think about the embarrassment. You were running away from your responsibility and got stuck in this pit. You were running away from what you were supposed to be, the daddy, the mama, the teacher, the believer, the follower of Christ, the student, you are running away what you were supposed to be and you got stuck. The valley of failure. Right? Number two. I can preach a whole sermon on every single one of these, I promise you. Right? Number two. The valley of uh, Eshol. E-S-H-C-O-L. I told you, you had all the right pronouncers at the beginning of the sermon. You ain't getting no more of them. Numbers chapter 13. You know the story, at least, if you don't know, well, you know this valley, right? Numbers chapter 13, God's people had been going through the wilderness for 40 years, you know, making this trip. They finally get to this part, right? And what does Moses do? He gets some spies. Let's go check out the land. You remember, he picked 12 of them. We get their names in Scripture. Read Numbers 13. You can get all their names right. Verse 33, though, here's what happens. He sends them spies over there, and they come back. <laughs> you got a picture of them coming back, by the way. Caleb, Caleb and Joshua is totally great. Now you're thinking, how'd you know that? I don't know who was toting the grapes, but in my mind, Caleb and Joshua was toting them because they're the only two that talked about the grapes, right? So they come toting this branch of grapes, like in between the two of them, like man grapes, right? Right? And they check this thing out, how big these grapes are, right? But but then there's there's this, this valley that it talked about. Literally, number 13 told me they had to cross this valley to, to get up there. And here's what they said in verse 33 to the rest of them. In our own eyes, we felt as small as grasshoppers. It's the valley of fear. They were scared. Now, when you get to the valley of fear, you got two options. You can either move ahead or you can give up. That's it. That's only two options. You ain't got no other options. You move ahead or you give up. You give up and you stay there. I don't know about you, but I don't want to stay in the valley of fear. I've been called to get out of the valley of fear. All right? Third valley. So you got valley of fear, valley of failure, third valley. The valley of Elah. First Samuel chapter 17. I know you guys remember this story, even if you didn't go through the series with us, everybody knows it. You've got scripture tells us that the Israelites were on one area, one peak, one hill, and the Philistines were on the other. And it said in the middle of them was this valley of Elah, E-L-A-H. Again, I'll pronounce them all wrong. I understand. It's okay. Don't tell me at the back door. Okay. Point is you get the lesson. Okay. They're, They're standing there and they're looking at each other. A king who should be doing what a king's gonna do. Maybe, maybe that's, maybe, maybe that's the problem. Maybe Ahab didn't know some good spiritual stories and he said, you know what? The last time you said you was going to do something, you brought forth another leader, a champion to beat on the giant. Who are you bringing forth? He said, I ain't bringing nobody else this time. You're going to do it, Ahab, right? But anyway, this time he did. He brings this little boy who's going to take his brother's lunch, you know, and, and tell him, good job, guys. Way to go, right? He's going to bring him the, the Reese's peanut butter cups down, okay? And he looks and he sees all this going on. He sees this one guy in the middle because rather than everybody fight everybody and kill everybody, they say, you know what? Let's just take our best soldier, your best soldier. And let's get it on in the valley of Eli, right? 
17 verse 3. The Philistines occupied one hill, the Israelites another, with the valley of Elah right between them. Sometimes you got to go into the valley to fight the conflict. That's what Elah is, the valley of conflict. Some of you are facing a great challenge. A, gr- a giant of a challenge. How about let's just call it that, right? And you got to decide if you're going to let that, gi- that giant of a challenge stop you or if you're going to keep on going through with it. I don't know what your challenge is. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're just new to this parenting thing. Maybe you're new to this walk with Christ thing. Maybe you're new to this marriage thing. Whatever it is, maybe you're new at work. It's a challenge for you. You've got a conflict ahead and you got to decide, am I going to face the conflict or not? Or am I going to stay on the hill? Because if they'd have stayed on the hill, guess what? They'd have never made it. The other side of the other hill. Right? You stay on that hill and don't go down in the valley. That's what happens. So you got the valley of conflict, valley of fear, valley of failure. And the fourth one, I would say last for today, but I did come up with another one at the end, so I can't lie. Right? Valley of, of, of Paca or Baca. B-A-C-A. Right? Baca. Maybe Baca would be better. B-A-C-A. How about it, Hebrew people? Huh? <laughs> close enough. Yeah, I'm doing well when I get a close enough call, right? Psalm 84, though, here's what it writes about this one. This is cool. And you got to do a little bit of studying on this one, right? I, I advise you to study more on it anyway. Blessed are those whose strength comes from the Lord as they pass through the valley of, of, of Baca. Baca, right? The word means weeping. You, you ever had to pass through some weeping? You ever had to do some crying? You ever had to get your ugly cry on? You know what I'm saying? Right? But here's what's cool about it. Now, when you, when you study this place, Bacal was, was a desert, it was a wasteland, it was a dried up place. You don't know what valley it is? It's the valley of grief and barrenness. It's, it's, it's a valley you go through in your life where like nothing is being produced. Nothing is going well. The drought for three and a half years is going on, right? And you're weeping. <laughs> really, really, your tears are the only thing that's making any water there, right? But so, sometimes I... I talk to people sometimes, you know, some, such as like yesterday with a funeral and all. And, and, and here's something I learned. I thank God I learned it early. I used to think for the first couple of years, you know, when you're thrown into to, 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 to being a pastor. And I say thrown in because the Lord literally threw me uh, into it. Right. But when you're thrown into it and you're in your early 20s and you just now had your, a nine month old baby. Uh, and yeah, right after that, you find out your wife's pregnant again. because That's how far apart they are because we like it like that. Right. Um. And you're, you're in that stage, you try to develop answers really fast for stuff. Like, seriously. So, I would, you know, doing funerals that early, doing weddings that funeral, all that stuff. I'd always try to find, and then what's the answer? Like, what is, what's the trick? You know, you call Mike, hey, what do I tell somebody, you know, this? Or, or give me a phrase you would use, or give me a thing that you would use. Or when you're about to preach a funeral for somebody who just lost a child, you know, and even if it's a baby, or, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff, and you start coming in. You know what I learned? You can say some of the coolest stuff you think you, you can Google and find the coolest phrases ever to say. You, you can come out with the coolest gifts. You, you, you can like come out with the best jokes. And when none of that stuff works, you know what works? When you just sit down and cry with them. I'm serious. The valley of weeping. When, when, when you just cry because the woman thought it'd be a cool idea to play her dead husband's song at her dead child's funeral. That was yesterday for me. Coolest moment ever. Don't you wow it? It was awesome. But it did make me cry like a little baby. Right? But, but, but there's moments like that where you, where you had that recording, right? And you could use it or it could have been an obstacle that you never overcame. It was opportunity or obstacle. Use it as an opportunity. And when you weep with people, maybe that's some of the things. Some of you asking right now, how do I relate to family members and friends in the struggle? Weep with them. Try weeping with them. Try wrapping your arms around them and just crying with them. Just being with them. I done sat down with people for hours and ain't said a word, and they would tell me that was the greatest conversation they ever had. I'm serious. I'm dead serious. You're just like, well, thank God that he was speaking because maybe you was hearing other voices because it wasn't me. Right? I'm sure I didn't say nothing because I was praying the whole time not knowing what to say. Right? I'm serious. Try weeping with him. And when you weep so much, here's what it says. I should have put this one on the screen. If you got your Bibles, open it up and highlight it. Psalm 84, 5, and 6. I, I, I love the first part of 6 because it's, it's the awesome thing, right? As they pass through the valley of weeping, Baca, they make it a place of springs. They make it a place of springs. It was a barren, dried up desert. When they saw this word, that way they would know, guys. Because, and here's the cool thing. You had to pass through this desert, this dry area, to get to God's kingdom, right? So you had to pass through it to get to what was promised. All right? 
But but it says, as you pass through it, you cry so much while you're going through it. Dry the weeping thing, right? That they make it a place of springs. And then it goes on later on in that psalm to talk about God blessing it. It's your valley of grief and barrenness. What valley are you in, man? Now, I could, I could give you many more valleys. We could go through more of them, but y'all be telling me that it was lunchtime. And then I could tell you that Carla took time to testify. And, you know, But I don't want to get into blaming who for who, right? Verse 26. Wow, we got a long way to go. Verse 26. So it was the spring of the next year. Imagine exactly what the man of the Lord told him was going to happen, happen, right? Spring of the next year, and the Syrians went up to attack him again. Verse 27. You got a picture of verse 27, by the way. Israel, the, the Israeli army is outnumbered and outpowered. So much so that it says one army what, what just took up the whole hill. And the other army looked like what? A flock of goats. Now, I personally love when scripture does that because they wasn't sheep. They was goats. <laughs> but that's a whole other sermon in itself, right? Study that on your own, right? I've been a goat and I've been a sheep. <laughs> All right, sometimes I'm still both. Verse 28. <laughs> Verse 28, it says this. Then the man of God approached the king again. Dang. This guy just keeps coming at the moment that it's needed, right? Look, look, look at verse 28. The man of God approaches and says this. This is what Yahweh says. Because the Armenians have said, the Lord, Yahweh, is a God of the mountains and not a God of the valleys. I'm going to hand over the whole huge army to you. Then you finally going to know that I am Yahweh. I wonder if God just gets tired of saying, you finally going to know. You finally going to know. You finally going to know. Right? You ever had to tell your kids something that many times? You're going to learn your lesson. You're going to learn your lesson. You're going to learn your lesson. I just need a recording. You're going to learn your lesson, right? Eventually, you're going to learn your lesson, I promise. Maybe that's God with us, right? Now, now he, here's what you've got to fix. Now, here's why God's doing this. Remember, God always, God's always got a purpose, right? One was just showing grace. One was showing that he won the battle. And nobody else, when he took the JV squad and picked up the, the NFL pros, right? Here it is. God takes bad theology from the, from the Assyrians as personal insult. You talk about God forgetting stuff all the time. You know, God chooses to forget stuff, right? He don't have to forget nothing, right? I hope we understand that. So now I think we're dumb enough to think, like, because we said this magical prayer, like, God just, ooh, it was, it was taken from God's memory. I don't think that's quite the way it works. All right, we can get into a whole discussion on that later, too. But, but anyway, I want you to make sure, like, I think God chooses to forget what he forgets. All right, but he didn't forget this. Because what does it say? Now, he's been brewing on this. You ever brewed on something? I'm the only one, okay. I'm an evil person and I brew on stuff sometimes, okay? Hi, my name's Philip and welcome to, I don't know what you would call that, Brewer Anonymous, right? right, I'm brewing on it, right? I I got that problem sometimes. Could you imagine? Now, when I brew on something, I can think of some good stuff. My mind is just messed up, you know what I'm saying? Like, I can think of some cool ways to torture people and get some stuff done, right? Right? I'm just being honest. Can you imagine God Brewing on something for a year. You didn't even notice that part of it, did you? See, he'd been sitting for a whole year on his little throne or whatever title seat y'all want to give him, right? And he'd been thinking about that bad theology that the Assyrians had. And he'd been waiting because he knew they was going to attack again. He goes, I'm going to show them. I'm not just a God of mountaintops. I'm a God in the valley of my people as well. And that's what he tells them. And he says, I want to make sure you understand this. You're not going to take away from my glory. I don't need you to add to my glory either for you note takers. Make sure you get both of them. God don't need either one, right? But God's going to show the whole world that he's both God of the mountains and God of the plains, God of the peaks and God of the valleys. And he makes sure to make sure Ahab knows this is why I'm doing it. Now, God don't always tell us why he's doing it, but he does tell us here, right? Then you get to verse 29. That flock of goats beat up 100,000 people. Hoorah, right? The JV squad done become Navy SEALs, right? No, I'll tell you, that's what happened. Then, then after, you know, it's one thing when you watch 100,000 people, and they give you all an idea. Now, I know the Rose Bowl didn't take place in, in the Rose Bowl Stadium that, that it's supposed to take place in this year, but that Rose Bowl Stadium, the reason they have it there here, it holds 100,000 people. 100,000 people for a football game. That's, that's like a lot of people. Could you imagine all of them being wiped out and gone? Could you imagine if you saw 100,000 people get wiped out by a flock of goats? Right? Flock of goats just beat up 100,000 people, right? So what do you do? Well, now you're in the valley of fear. You're running, right? And hopefully you don't slip and get stuck in the valley of mud, right? Because <laughs> then you're going to get in the valley of grief and barrenness. They all lead to each other, I promise you, right? 
But 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 they run away and they get in the city and they so oh we're protected by the city walls. Must have forgot about Jericho. Verse thirty, it says that the city walls then fell down and killed twenty seven thousand more people. Now before any of you start asking me, do you think it was exactly twenty seven thousand? No, I don't care either. Right, a lot of them died. He could have wrote a lot of people died and I'd be fine with it. Just like I don't think it was a hundred thousand to be exact. I don't think they went out there and counted the bodies. Well, I got 999,999. Can you find one more? Give me one more dead body so we can call it 100,000. No. It means a lot. Okay, it means a lot. City walls fall, kill them, right? Somehow, do you ever feel like evil people just get away with stuff? Because that's kind of where I'm at when I get to verse 31 through 34, just to be blunt and honest. I can't stand when evil people get away. Maybe that's part of my mind. Remember, I'm, I'm brewer and honest. I'd be, I'd be brewing sometime and, and I need to stop it, right? But I can't stand when an evil person gets away with something. But they do all the time. Ahab somehow, now the city walls done fell and killed 27,000 more people, right? That killed a lot of people, right? Somehow, Benadad is hiding somewhere in there. In verse 31 through 34, we get a complete reversal of Ahab and Benadad. Remember, Ahab was begging for mercy from Benadad in the beginning. Please don't do this. I'm not going to, have to, I'm not going to be able to surrender everything to you, but I don't want you to wipe us out either. Now it's reversed. Benadad, I figure out he's getting his butt kicked by Jesus. Right? You know what I'm saying? And, yeah, Jesus wasn't there. Okay, he's getting his butt kicked by Yahweh. Whatever. All right? He's getting his butt kicked, and he realizes, man, this is it. So what does he do? He pleads for mercy. Right? Everybody say, Ahab is an idiot. I just wanted y'all to be guilty of the same sin I'm guilty of right now. Okay, because I've been saying it the whole sermon. Ain't none of y'all been with me, right? Now we all together. We all guilty of judging a brother. All right? Verse 32, because here's why he's an idiot again. Is he still alive? He's my brother. We played on the playground together. It was so cool, right? What? what? Are y'all picturing it? Maybe y'all ain't picturing it because y'all looking at me like I'm crazy. And I know I am a little bit. I'm turning 37 today, so I'm, I'm getting there, right? All, all, the, all the loose screws are falling out the rest of the way. Right? Picture this now. This dude that's been wanting to wax your butt for over a year and a half now, because they had to have that weeks where they came in for the first battle, so I say a year and a half, roughly, all right? You've been standing there. You sat there for seven days staring at each other across that valley. Don't miss that verse just because I missed it, right? Before you went back into it, right? Don't stare at your enemy too long before you get in the valley and kick his hiney, right? So, so you got that free lesson for you. Now you want to say, oh, he's my brother? What? What in the world, man? Yet again, this guy doesn't consult the Lord. You want to know what he consults? His ego. He's getting flattered by a guy he looked up to at one time. Now you imagine if you were king and another guy is a king and got 32 chieftains under him. That's a pretty powerful force, right? Somebody look up to. Man, that guy's got it going on, right? He gets flattered by this humble submission by a guy he looked up to. Now he's one of the big boys. Remember before he was calling himself a servant? He ain't a servant no more. Now he's an equal, right? He looked for friends in the wrong places. Let me say that again for anybody under the age of 37. He looked for friends in the wrong places. Do not get caught looking for friends in the wrong places. We do this. Now, why is he doing it? I give him credit. I know why he's doing it. He wants to get ahead. If he can get on this guy, if he can be chieftain number 33, right? How good things going to be? He can prosper himself. Sometimes you want to hang out with the wrong people so that you can prosper yourself and get ahead. That'll get you in trouble. Right? Verse, verse 34. So he made this treaty with him and sent him away. What? Now here's where you understand why I'm so mad, guys. Ahab's got no business making this treaty because the victory was God's and not his. He's got no right to negotiate away a victory that the Lord had won. Don't we often try to strike deals we shouldn't? He's striking a deal he shouldn't have struck, right? He's probably feeling really good about himself. He's made Israel great again. He's had two great military victories in, in a row here. He's got peace with it with an enemy that they hated. He's bargained back and captured land. He signed a new deal, a new trade agreement. Economic expansion is going on. Things look great. And you could think it ends there, but then we get verse 35. It says, a certain man of the sons of the prophets. I just want to point out that verse because to me it shows me that the 7,000 faithful followers were active. Because I don't think it's the same prophet. I think that's why they don't get a name in this chapter. I think of a lot of different prophets what was doing some work, right? They, they, they get this 39 through 40. This would have been a ploy of many prophets. Same thing Nathan did when he approached King David. 
right? To, to give, if you got to give bad news to a king, you use a story. Putting the king and making judge yourself, right? Remember when Nathan did it to, to, to David? Now he's doing the same thing, right? Here's what he says, verse 40. While your servant was busy, the guy he was told to uh, be responsible for got away. Now, I had a lot of notes here, but I'm going to be generous. I'm going to be real generous for you guys. I'll make sure you understand. If, you, if I see people write it down, don't get too busy that you neglect your responsibility. I don't see hands right. I'm going to go on and preach this page, right? No, I'm not going to. I'm serious. Though. Think about this though. This is exactly what's going on. What does he say? This man's excuse. He was busy here and there. That's no excuse at all. He had a job to do and he neglected to do it because he got busy with many other things that weren't his central work. There's too many parents that got busy and forgot to parent. There's too many followers that got busy and forgot to follow. Too many pastors that got busy and forgot to pastor. The fact is that we fail when we get busy and we neglect the thing that God commanded us to do as most important. Okay? He was gone, it says. He was gone. The guy got away. Now, this fictional prisoner who got away reminds me of this. Opportunities that escape us in the Christian life. Anytime I'm at a funeral, you can't help but think about what time. Think about it. When time's gone, you don't get it back. You can change it, make it back up, but you don't get it back. I want to make sure we understand this morning that any part of our life not spent in God's service is gone. You don't get it back. Now, Now, you can start back over. God is a God of new beginnings. Thank the Lord, right? But that time's wasted that you've already wasted. You ain't getting it back. We ain't got no time machines, right? You don't get it back again. It's history, right? This prophet story that he's telling, that there was an unfaithful guy guarding something that was entrusted to him. So Ahab says, you know what? He's responsible for what he failed to guard that was entrusted to him. And I bet the prophet just smiles, right? He smiles so big, verse 41, that the king begins to recognize him. Because when he smiles, his clothes fall off. Remember he got punched in the eye? And, you know, that whole story. So he looked like a looked like a soldier when he's telling the story. You know why that's so important? I won't go share this detail. I think it's kind of important, right? Ahab was constantly trying to shield himself from the prophets. Just, just study a lot, a lot of his life throughout the whole thing. He's always trying to stay away from God's side and God's word. Certain people are going to begin to make an effort to stay away from you when they realize you speak for the Lord. And maybe you should seek to make an effort to speak, to stay away from those that don't speak for the Lord. Right? That one's free. Verse 42. Because you let it slip out of the hand, the man who I appointed to your utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his and his life for yours and their people for his people. Man. Now God's kind of acting like what I, I figured he'd act like. Right? What he's saying, God intended for Benadad to be utterly destroyed. He did. And he's going to come back in a couple chapters and we'll go see why, right? But God also intended not only that he would be destroyed, but he would be destroyed by the army of Israel. See, God, God doesn't always just care about the end. He cares about how we get to the end. He cared about exactly how this was going to happen, right? But ha- how often is it we get like Ahab and we think that we can better God's plan, right? I mean, it seems like a good thing. We're showing grace. Aren't we supposed to be graceful little believers? Right? Not, not if God told you not to. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 7 had been telling them the whole time how he felt about mixing with those of pagan territories. He's not happy with it, right? So verse 43, so the king of Israel went into his house Sullen and displeased is what this translation says. Sullen and displeased. I point that out to point this out. He was sullen and displeased, but he wasn't repentant. He felt bad because he got caught. But he wasn't repentant. He didn't want to change. It wasn't anything else, right? He had the sorrow of being a sinner without having the sorrow of the sin itself. And that's us sometimes. Wrap this thing up. We get on hiking trails in life, peaks, valleys. We need to make sure we understand that God is with us. I gave you some valleys and we talked about I don't want to I don't want to end without telling you ways to, to, to get out of a valley or things to remember when you're in a valley. Number one, and I'm not going to go into them, just three, I promise. Number one, remember, you're not alone. God's with you. That's pretty simple and easy, right? Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He is with me. You ever notice it says the shadow of death? You notice a shadow can look bigger than the real thing. Right. You ever been hit by the shadow of a truck? I haven't, but it doesn't hurt if you did. Right, but if you get hit by a truck, it hurts. All right? Psalm 73, he writes, as for me, God's presence is all I ever needed to get through it. Number two. So remember, you're not alone. Number two, remember God has a purpose for the valley. Hosea chapter two, I will transform the valley of trouble into the gateway of hope. He's got a purpose for the valley. Remember, even though, even today, we had, we saw a purpose for the valley, right? Number three. Remember the reward lasts forever. Corinthians chapter four, second Corinthians chapter four, verse 17. 
For our present troubles are quite small and they won't last very long. Yet they are producing in us an eternal glory that will last forever and ever and ever, greater than anything we can imagine. Your valley doesn't have to last forever. Joel chapter 3, our last verse. I told you there'd be one more valley. So you got the valley of death, by the way. I didn't even think to learn that Hebrew word. I would have just said it wrong anyway, so what's the matter, right? But then this other valley, look at what it calls it. Multitudes, multitudes. That means there's a lot. That means there's a 100,000. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. I don't know which part of the character you relate to the most. I don't know which valley you relate to the most. But I know every single one of us, if we not in this valley right now, we've been in this valley. In the valley of decision. And you got to decide when you're in the valley of decision, who you're going to follow. Is God going to be with you in the valley or not? Or are you going to be a mountaintop worshiper only or, or a valley worshiper only? What's it going to be? Valley of decision. you got to decide what it's going to be. Nobody can decide for you. That's between you and the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. God, I'm so grateful for your main, your main lesson, Lord God. You're not just a mountaintop God. You're a valley God. God, I'm so grateful that, yea, we have to walk through the, the shadow of death at some point. You don't leave us. You walk through it with us. God, maybe even for some of us, you give us a song to write down and sing. For some of us, you give us a testimony to shout about. For some of us, Lord God, you just give us that, that text message just happens to appear. Or a friend that just happens to stop by. Or somebody that will weep with us, Lord God, when we're weeping. But God, I know beyond the shadow of a doubt in my heart, Lord God, that those things are things you line up. Because of your sovereignty, Lord God. Because of your control over every situation. God, I pray for those of us that are in different valleys, Lord God, that we make it out. Lord, I pray at this, this last moment, Lord God, that if we were like the book of Joel's talking about, Lord God, we're in the valley of decision. And Lord God, we make the decision to hold true to your promises and your word and what they tell us about you. Lord, move in a mighty way, not just at this moment, Lord God, but throughout this whole week ahead. As we remember the things, as we reflect on them. In your name we pray. Amen.